Welcome to The Careful Photograph. I'm your host, Tara Krynak. This will be our final episode of the first season. Yes, the spring semester has rapidly come to an end. But if you have enjoyed these conversations, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, write us a review, or even just DM me on Instagram. Every one of your messages has been deeply appreciated and archived and will help us fund a second season. Thank you to all the artists who have participated and shared so generously. And to you, my listeners, students, and colleagues who have trusted me with directing the Monroe Center for Social Inquiry during this pandemic year. My course on photography and the racialized body will now be a regular offering at Pitzer College, and I really do hope to continue this podcast in some form next fall. My guest this week is Raphael Soldi, and together we will be taking a closer look at an untitled photograph from his series Imagined Futures. You can see Raphael's photograph and find links to more of his work on our website and Instagram accounts. Again, that is thecarefulphotograph.com and at thecarefulphotograph. Raphael Soldi is a Peruvian-born, Seattle-based artist and curator. He has exhibited internationally at the Fry Art Museum, American University Museum, Griffin Museum, the Print Center, Museo Mate, among others. His work is in the permanent collections of the Tacoma Art Museum, Fry Art Museum, King County Public Art Collection, and the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. And his work has been reviewed in Art Forum, the Seattle Times, the Boston Globe, PDM, and elsewhere. Raphael has been awarded residencies at Picture Berlin, Vermont Studio Center, and he was a recipient of the prestigious 2019 Bogliasco Foundation Fellowship. His first monograph, Imagined Futures, was published in 2020. He is the co-founder of the Strange Fire Collective, co-curator of the High Wall, and board member of the Society for Photographic Education. The story behind Raphael Soldi's series, Imagined Futures, begins on November 8, 2016, the night of Trump's election, when, overcome with shock and fear, Soldi stepped into a photo booth, closed his eyes, and tried to imagine what the next four years might bring for his friends and family, whom he describes as mostly women, immigrants, queer, trans, black, and brown. During those 10 seconds, the photo booth's camera recorded what Soldi describes as a haunting private moment of an imagined future. Then he put the photo strip away in his notebook. Two years later, he came across the strip again and, still haunted by what its images represented, Soldi began to draw and expand upon the form, employing the photo booth as a stage for a series of private, ritualized performances. Over the next two years, Soldi made 50 photo booth performance portraits. Each one cut from the strip and framed individually, these 50 photographs collectively comprise the series Imagined Futures. In this episode, we talk about the history of the use of the photo booth in art and popular culture, 
how a previous generation of artists have used the photo booth to make self-portraits examining questions of self-representation and the multiplicity of identity. Raphael, by contrast, is not interested in the self-portrait, but rather in the way these types of images and cameras have served to represent, surveil, and control deviant bodies, racialize others, and immigrants. Soldi photographs his own body in the photo booth as a means to grapple with the difficulty of the immigrant experience, which he describes as a body in mourning, a feeling of displacement and alienation akin to the grief we feel for a home we had to leave behind and a life we never lived. I hope you enjoy this eighth and final episode of our first season of The Careful Photograph. Until next year, take care. So I'm here today with Raphael Soldi, and we are speaking about Imagined Futures, which is a project that contains 50 self-portraits, and we're concentrating on one of them, and then we'll move into some other. We'll talk about this one portrait, but we're going to use it as a way to sort of talk about the whole project, because Raphael's project Imagined Futures depends on the multiple. And I think that many of your projects, Raphael, depends on seeing more than one photograph. And I think that's a great way to just lead into, could you describe this single image, single photograph for our listeners today? Yeah. Thanks, Tara. Uh, and thanks for having me. The The photograph that we've, um, that I've pulled out from the series, you, you can't tell because you're looking at it digitally, but it's a small photograph. It's about one and a half by one inch. So about the size of a passport photo. It was made in a photo booth. Um, so I think most people can imagine sort of what that looks like. It, it is black and white. It, um, it depicts myself. Um, I'm, I have black hair. I have a beard. I'm wearing glasses. I'm wearing a white shirt, a white t-shirt. And I have my eyes closed. Um, and I guess you could say I, I look somewhat maybe pensive or, or meditative. There is, you, you get to see a slight black frame on the right side of the image from the photo booth and a scratch running through the image, um, which was also made by the photo booth as it came out. The way that I'm experiencing it is different than I would experience it in the gallery. Could you talk about the differences between the materiality of experiencing this photograph in the book form versus in the gallery. Yeah. I mean, for starters, in the gallery, you're seeing the original. And one of the things okay. that attracted me to the booth, and I I think we'll, we'll get to this a little later, but one of the things that I loved about the, the photo booth is that it was able to capture this one unique moment in time, and there was no negative, there was no um, duplicate, there's no no other image exists other than the one that you hold in your hand. And and that sense of immediacy and preciousness was really important to the project. Um, I, I did cut out, you know, the strip. We usually think of a photo booth strip with having four. So um, even though I sat very still and the images looked like duplicates in the strip, each one of them is in fact unique. And that was really important to me. So I've, I've cut one out and what you would experience in the gallery would be this uh, very tiny, small self-portrait framed with a small white mat around it and a little um, ebonized black um, 
walnut frame around it. And then the small frames by the end are roughly the same size as the box in the book. I think they're like six by seven, roughly something like that. They're a little more squarish. And then they're hung together, kind of butted right against each other um, in a big installation that features 50 images in the final in the final work. The work is one piece with all 50 images in it. And um, so that's a very different way of experiencing the, the work um, versus how you see it in the book, which is, like you said, a clamshell box, a portfolio box that has all of the prints loose inside of it. They're unbound and people can move them around, change the order, play with them, hold them. And um, yeah, so it's, it's quite a different experience, I think. This portrait to me is the size of it, just engaging with it as I'm holding the book version in my hand. There's a softness about the image, um, which doesn't necessarily come through on screen. I guess I want to ask you about the eye, closing the eyes, the experience of making the photograph and how those sort of more intimate or private ideas around making a self-portrait sort of come through in in the um, materiality of what I'm holding here and what I see on screen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. You know, just to, to comment on what you said earlier, I I think of my, my body and myself as a tool in making the work and mm-hmm. um, as, a, as a material in making the work. And yes, I feel like if somebody, if somebody described me as an artist who makes self-portraits, I think I would probably rebuke that or it wouldn't mm-hmm. make, it just wouldn't make sense to me because I don't see myself as that. Um, you know, if Do you, you look not at my, see these as self-portraits then, these? I see them, I recognize them as self-portraits in that they are pictures of myself, um, definitely. Like I, I wouldn't, you know, push against that. But um, for me, it goes beyond making a portrait of myself. I think I used myself because I couldn't use anything else. I think that's an important difference though, Raphael. And I think for... Um, you know, my students who are listening and thinking about the difference between using our bodies and the self-portrait. And maybe we could come back to that. Like you said, there's a lot of layers to this work. It's not about any sort of one thing. But to kind of go back to to this idea of the experience of making the work and how that maybe impacts, you know, the, the image that we end up here, you know, in front of us. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It was... It was a process that took time to figure out. The first portrait I made in this manner happened in 2016 on election night. So it was the night that Donald Trump was elected. And I was in Berlin at an artist residency. And I think most of us can probably remember that night. It was a huge shock. It was really surprising. And um, I had already started to think a little bit more carefully about my just what it meant to be an immigrant here in the U.S. And I remember feeling like I needed a space to step into that felt private and intimate where I could just be alone for just a minute because the streets were crowded and I felt very overwhelmed. And I think I really, in that moment, a great sense of fear came over me about what the next four years might look like for the people I care about, most of whom are women, whom are queer or trans or brown or black. And... I stepped into the booth and it was almost, I honestly barely remember making that choice. I just put the Mm -hmm. coins in, closed my eyes, took a breath and made these four pictures, which came out and they were very haunting. And 
I, I held them and I put them in my notebook and my sketchbook. And I just held on to that for like maybe a year and a half, two years. And I kept coming back to it and thinking that there was something in that action and in that experience and in those photographs that felt really powerful. I knew that I didn't want the work to explain itself too much. I do talk mm -hmm. about it in length, you know, in the book, of course, in my essay. And um, I've talked about it in, you know, like here right now and on interviews. And I don't mind that. But mm -hmm. I wanted it to be work that wasn't burdened by excessive titling or, mm -hmm. um, you know, sort of dates and things that would make people way too grounded in reality or too grounded on the facts. Like I wanted people to be able to just see the work and feel something. The second thing was that this happened, I think this project was really important to me because it happened during a time where now looking back, it's not too far away, it's a few years ago, but I think it was in a time where I reached a certain level of maturity as an artist in my career um, where I felt more confident about making work and I felt more confident in not having to explain all my choices. And I felt more confident right. in one, following my, my instinct, but two, letting some things simply be um, arbitrary or letting some things simply be um, sort of a result of a parameter that I set for myself. And I think in the past, I used to feel so pressured to have some kind of conceptual answer to everything that I did that it didn't allow me to right. really focus on the things that were really important. And I think in this work, I was mm -hmm. like, you know, I'm just going to really focus on the conceptual elements that I really, really care about. And then I'm going to let all the other decisions be made by parameters that I only have to choose once. And then from then on, those decisions make themselves, you know, like, the fact that I'm using a mm -hmm. photo booth, the fact that they're all black and white, the fact that they're the same size, the fact mm -hmm. that I'm cutting them out. And that gave me so much freedom to really just sit with the work um, and not question my every move and my every, you know, decision formally that I'm making, if that makes sense. I want to talk to you about the, uh, the scratch, the imperfections mm -hmm. of the image. And you could yeah. go through each of these portraits and you can find these amazing imperfections because of the unique quality of the photo booth and kind of just the ways that photo booth um, photo booths make a photograph, right? Just the technical aspects of it. Um, and there's, there is something very satisfying about the chance operation of these. They, they feel magical. They feel small and intimate and like I'm peering into someone's private experience. Um, so I, I guess this is just to say that I, I really admire the way that it's really interesting actually to sit here and, and look at one image for an extended period of time because <laughs> I've always thought of them as, you know, this, this collection of images that are kind of build on one another. And as you know, my work tends to be very clean and uh, very sort of thought through and minimal and it was nice mm -hmm. that it wasn't a scratch that I made <laughs> it was nice that I could kind of just blame it on something else and just embrace it in that way um I also like that very much like you know 
I can step into that photo booth and it can become this this very private, very intimate stage for my performance. I'm only there for 10 seconds and then I step out and it's somebody else's turn. You know, and that little booth has held so many stories and so many people for 10 seconds at a time. And much like I feel that scratch is mine, mm -hmm. the next person who went a minute after me got the same scratch on their picture, you know? And <laughs> I, I love that idea that, you know, it's like I can claim it for myself all I want, but it's not really mine, you know? Um, it's it's a shared a shared wound you could say on everybody else's pictures too, um, and yeah, it, it became an interesting way to to add. Of course, the repetition was important, but I did want there to be some variance in the images. At the very beginning of the project, I was moving a little bit more in the pictures um, because I thought that maybe just me staring straight off, you know, straight front in all the images would be too boring or too, you know, too repetitive. And then the moving of my head and my body felt totally contrived, which it was. And, um, and then I just realized that the booth, the personality of the booth was enough. Like it, it did enough to leave its mark on the image. And in some booths, it was staining in some booths. It was like an overly powerful flash. Some booths were too dark. Some booths had old chemistry and all of these things became this mm -hmm. evidence, this mark making of the machine itself that was out of my control. And that felt very liberating too. Another question that I had is about the relationship of the photo booth portrait to identity. And especially when cutting these out, they feel like, um, like they actually feel like the size of some of the passport, the old passport photos that I found in Lima. Um, when I was looking for vernacular images for my own work. This also reminds me of the way that artists like Cindy Sherman or Andy Warhol um, also used the photo booth in their work, but were much more concerned with a presentation of the self and the multiplicity of identities. And here, again, because we have such a narrow amount of time, um, you change very little but actually, when you start to look at them more closely, you do see how much a person changes. I mean, it, and I am fascinated by those slight changes just with, again, facial hair, um, angles of the face. You know, I always think people look so different from different angles, even if it's very slight, you look very different in some of them, just because your chin is higher or your chin is lower. Um, and so I'm wondering how much of that, number one, the history of photography and its relationship to identity was sort of part of this work. And then, and if you could talk about your interest in that, and then these, this kind of self-presentation and the the way you change, the way your face changes, the way you seem like you could be a different person, actually, in some of them. Um, yeah, if you could talk about those things. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's I part of that, you know, growing up, that growing up that I was talking about earlier, uh, or maturing as an artist, I think was also realizing and learning that you don't have to have all the answers when you're making the work and 
that's something that I think I used to struggle with before. I needed to know all my references. I needed to know what my work was about and what it was referencing ahead of time before I made it. And one thing that I learned was that there were some things that I knew before I made the work. There were some things that I knew while I made the work. And there were some things that I knew or discovered after I made the work. And these references to the history of photography were all things that kind of came up for me afterwards. And I think we're in some subconscious level there, but um, there were just so many other things for me to to focus on while I was making the pictures that I didn't, I wasn't ready to go there. Some of these things were things that I knew and thought about, and some of them were brought up by Miguel Lopez when he wrote the essay for the book that I was like, oh, oh my God, yes. you know, And this is why we have writers and curators who do a wonderful job at interpreting our work and helping us see it in different ways. Yes, yes. um, Which, you know, people think that we should be the only ones who know everything about our own work. And I think other people can bring really interesting perspectives. And just because they brought them to you doesn't mean that they're not true about the work. Um, And so he helped me really see, I think, through his essay, some of the deeper connections to how the ID photograph had been used. Uh, both in terms of, I had been thinking a little bit about how Felix Gonzalez Torres used the passport image to invoke this idea of of traveling through time and space, of a body in motion, of a body in transit, um, especially in the case of a migrant body. And then Miguel really helped me kind of think about ideas of how the ID photograph was really created as a tool to document and control society. And in its infancy, it was used to categorize deviant bodies, queer bodies, black bodies, criminals, and um, later used to uh, make death portraits as well. And how all of these things sort of come together. And, and then I'm kind of bringing it all back to the present and thinking about how facial recognition is being used to identify people and how there's just so much bias in this kind of state surveillance apparatus and how we are surveilled and um, these catalogs are being created in China and other countries of its own citizens and giving them scores and you know social scores and things like that so I think there's a lot of deep connections that run through so many facets of the history of photography a photo booth used to serve a different function. I feel as if it's vintage and fun and it's found in bars, but the history of the photo booth itself is actually really fascinating and has less to do with being this kind of vintage fun (laughs) um, machine that we find in, uh, in a bar and more to do with that early history of photography that you were just talking about. Um, It's interesting. That's why I decided to cut it up because I felt that the, I was actually quite struggling at first with whether I should keep the strip in its entirety or I should cut it. And I kind of consulted with a group of, of artists and a critique group and they were all like, you cannot cut the strip. Like they're so powerful. It's four, you have to keep them together. And it was one of those things where I was like, mm, no, I think I'm just going to do what I think I have to do. And part of that honestly just came from fear. Like I was really afraid of um, just the connotations that a full strip 
from a photo booth has in terms of pop culture and especially at the time still now but i think a few years ago there was such a kind of zeitgeist around photo yes. booths where they're like yes. cool and vintage and yes I was like i really don't want that i think i want to like move away from that and cutting it up felt like right. a good way to no pun intended strip it from that yes. meaning. Yeah. um and and i'm glad that i did but also the interesting thing is that for a long time i was also like trying to move away or say like this is not like warhol this is not like cindy sherman yes. this is not like this. yes and then over time i've started to be like well is it though like maybe it's not but <laughs> is, it, is it right to you know like do i have to just give a little bit more thought and a little bit more weight to some of these other uses of the photo booth that have come before me like is it really that different from it i'm not sure you know so it's been interesting to to fight the the voices coming from myself, from other places, from other people, and and be okay with with navigating kind of a shifting understanding of the work as time passes by, you know. Well, this is why I just think the decision, all of the decisions that you made that went into this work, there's so much control around. Well, a lot of your work, there's a lot of control, mm-hmm. um, and I think that the decision to cut the strip must have been just. I mean, I could just imagine like. You've got this one strip, and you're like, should I cut it? You know, like it I, a, I know, like as an artist, I'm just like, oh my god, no, don't cut it! But actually, like cutting it is what pulls it away from this idea of self-presentation, the multiplicity of identity, and allows that interaction of a one-on-one um, confrontation with a singular image. Um, which then I think allows us to focus more on the action and the performance in a different way than I than I think of self-presentation that is so present in some of the earlier photo booth work from the 70s or 80s. And I absolutely think that we have to contend with, if you're using the photo booth and it's 2020, it's, you know, because the photo booth has this a different life, you know, it just does now than it did in the eighties. Right. So I think the decisions that you made are so important to the way that we are pushed to understand the work. And it's like, you're kind of guiding us, you're guiding us with each of these decisions, decisions, um, into, um, interpreting the work in a very specific way. Um, and then the ways that, I think in the moments where you let go of that control um, are moments like the scratch or mm-hmm. like um, like the, sh- the ways that your body is changing or your face is changing. Like we don't really have too much control over that when we're closing our eyes and you're, you know, like these moments where the control, where you can't control that, um, I think are also more prominent than, and I get to kind of as a viewer, um, you know, kind of rest in those unknowns, which I think are really important to the project because it does have so much control around it, you know? Mm-hmm. We've talked a lot about now the singular image, and I really wanted to this podcast to focus on as much as we could a single image. And it, I could talk about this, this one forever. <laughs> um, there's so much here, but I wondered where we want to go next we don't have a lot of time left but we don't have to go we don't have to go to the other picture we can stay here and you know yeah i mean kind of 
kind of like wherever you want to go, Raphael, because I think there's still a lot we could talk about in terms of um, the overall conceptual layers in the work, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think um, you and I both have a relationship to Peru that is very different. And, you know, we've talked about this before on a panel together, but this is a moment where maybe there's time for you to expand on sort of the, this, well, imagined futures. I think it's, it's a really powerful title and as much as you've taken away the specific time and place and dates and sort of what was happening um, at the moment that you took these photographs and you've kind of disconnected us from that. Um, and it puts us in this, in this uh, more open-ended, I think, poetic space. And this is an opportunity also for you to talk a little more freely about that, I think, right? So what is this idea of imagined futures? How has that changed for you since you made the project, since you made a book and you're reflecting on it now? I I often think my work changes so much, like the process of making a book is actually really intensive and it just makes you see the work in a different way. So I, I wonder about that title, about imagined futures and just the kind of uh, maybe poetic qualities that, how has that changed? What is it? What was it at the beginning? What is it now? I agree with you in that I also feel that my work changes over time and I'm learning to let go of, you know, to not feel so attached to my ideas about my work in, in the sense that I know they're, they're going to change over time. And I'm glad you brought up again this this idea we discussed earlier of um, letting go of the the titles and the dates and the specifics because I think one thing that you know before we kind of go into some of these conceptual layers one thing that was really important to me was that although I am speaking about a subject from a personal perspective from the the perspective of, of my own experience it was important to me that the work eventually simply become a reason to talk about that subject in a broader sense so that it wasn't so much about me, 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 but that it was about, oh, that's an interesting story, you know, about Raphael and and that you could take a step back and as you step, literally step back from the, the installation on the wall, that my face would become almost anonymous. It would become just a face in the crowd and all of these little portraits could be anybody and that it spoke to a much larger, like global conversation about these ideas of immigration mm-hmm. and That's grievance. Beautiful. Yeah. 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 And um, so that was also one of the reasons I stripped so much of the information away um, so that I could become a stand in for another migrant, another person, even though our experiences and I mean, even you and I coming from the same country are incredibly different, even though um, I've been incredibly privileged in many ways um, that others haven't. So um, it's not necessarily about saying I am like everybody else, but about saying like, this is this is an idea, this is a concept that is somewhat abstract, but most immigrants feel or grapple with in some way or another. And so going back to sort of the, the, the actual conceptual layers of the work, I 
I migrated to the U.S. when I was about 15 years old. As a teenager, it was a really difficult time to come. I think it was at the very beginning. I Coming here at that age, it was really difficult to leave behind my friends, my school, my life. And I just thought everything in America was stupid. Like I was just <laughs> like, I don't like it here. I want to go home. Very quickly, though, I realized that everything in Peru was stupid, you know, like all of a sudden it, it all shifted, you know, very quickly where I was like, wow, like I have always wanted to be an artist and that's not something I could have ever done there. Even though, again, this is my 15 year old self speaking, not my, my current self speaking, but um, thinking like, oh, like I'm gay and I can be gay here in America and I can't do that in Peru. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden I felt really embraced and really like this was the place where I could be myself. And Peru was just like this place where I suffered so much through um, through my own kind of inner turmoil, not so much like I, I always like to make clear that I, you know, I was a very happy kid. I was provided for. I had, you know, everything that I, I could have needed um, for my family and my parents. But um, it didn't mean that I, I didn't really struggle with my own identity and with my own just coming to terms with this queerness, I was aware of my queerness from a very, very early age. Um, I don't know that I really understood it until later, but I always knew I was different. I always knew that um, I just, I didn't love the way culture like mediated the world that I was existing in. I went to this very uh, conservative Catholic, all boys school. It was a Jesuit school. So within Catholic schools, I should say probably it's not that, conservative but you know it was still this very masculine uh environment this very patriarchal environment and i really struggled you know school was really difficult and i know it's easy to think like well school is just one thing but i'm like i was in school like almost every day of my life for the first you know for about 12 years um so it's, it's hard to separate it from from the rest of my life that's where i lived probably most of my childhood was in school so um, I think I had a really difficult time separating um, or as a young kid realizing that I would have to, I think I knew as a very young kid that I would have to put on a big act. Like I was preparing, I felt like my childhood was just me taking these deep breaths and preparing for the final act, which was going to be me just pretending that I'm straight and marrying a woman and having children and becoming a lawyer or something like that. And that I was so aware in my head that none of these things were boxes I was interested in checking and that none of those things were me and that I just had to like suck it up and find a way to be a man. And that was a really difficult thing to like live with as a child. And then I came here and I realized like, None of those things are true. I don't have to be any of those things if I don't want to. And that felt really liberating. Um, so I think in, in some ways I'm mourning or grieving those futures, right? The, the difficult ones that I imagined as a kid that I think I carried with me for a really long time. And then on the other side, I'm grieving and thinking about the futures. You know, now as an adult, I'm going back and I'm finding you know, queer people who are making art and are happy and are living beautiful, fulfilled lives in Peru. 
where I'm from and I'm going back and I'm like, wait a minute, these people are happy. <laughs> like that doesn't make any sense to me, you know? And I'm, and now I'm like sitting here and be like, oh crap, did I make a mistake? Like, did I write it off too soon? So now I'm also grieving these futures that, you know, maybe could have happened that could have been great. And it's just this, I call it a library of, of imagined futures that exist within our psyches that we, we grapple with, you know, and think about. And I think most immigrants who leave their homes think about what it could have been like if they had never left. I wanted to not forget to ask you about your writing in, in the book version of the project. There's Miguel's essay, but you are also writing and you tell a really personal story, even in the what what I first encounter is a black box with the first line that says, sorry for the late night text, but I'm wide awake and a little jet lagged. And this mentions Peru and the Pacific Ocean and looking at the sun. And I just felt like this was stream of consciousness, but also it's so intimate. I connect with this writing like I would almost a journal entry. And it's the only place that I feel is very specific, ties me to a place, ties me to a time, ties me to a moment. And so I wondered if you could talk about this piece of writing that appears on the cover and how it functions. Yeah. Man, it's interesting to hear you say that because I've, I don't think I've read that, even though it's the cover of my book, I don't think I have read that paragraph since like the day <laughs> I wrote it, which was literally a t what you're looking at is a text message that I sent uh, to Matt, uh, the designer of the book at 3 a.m. in the morning. Um, I think I was, I think it might have been SPE or something because I remember being in my bed at a hotel room, sharing a room with Jess Dugan um, and they had been were in totally different time zones. They had been asleep for like three hours already and I was completely jet lagged and wide awake. And this was around the time where we had been thinking about what to do with the cover. It was like this big question, like, what do we do with this cover? We had tried a few things that weren't quite working. And I just had this like, this aha moment where I was like, oh my God, this picture, you know, I had, again, talking about this idea of, of maturing into the work and letting go, I used to think of my work in these very strict like project formats. And then I was like, you know, all this work that I'm making is all kind of about the same thing. Like they're all connected. And I had just completed a body of work, quote unquote, completed a body of work called Life Stands Still Here. And in it, the very last image that I made was the image that you see when you open the book and this kind of yes. burst of light comes through. Love that, love that. And it was a picture that, it's explained on the cover of the book, but a picture that I had made thinking about my connection to Peru. And this was around a time, it was, I think, almost the first picture I had ever made that strictly addressed my relationship to Peru. And I think it was around a time in my life where I had really softened and just opened up to the idea of repairing that relationship to my country and mm -hmm. um, started to just feel a lot of love and compassion and openness to it. Um, even though I felt it had hurt me or it had failed me in so many ways, I felt like I couldn't go on without it. Like pretending it didn't exist or just simply hating it mm. just didn't make sense. 
Like I needed to find a way to love it and I needed to find a way to accept it back into my life as a place that, that raised me and that made me who we, who I am today. And I had been walking down here in Seattle. I had been living on the East Coast for a long time and then I moved to the West Coast and I was walking down a hill and I see this beautiful sun just kind of setting on the Pacific Ocean. And it brought me right back to being a kid in Peru <laughs> and seeing the sun setting on the Pacific Ocean. And I felt the same the same feeling. It was very visceral. And I just remember thinking that moment like, wow, like I'm so far away. I'm like, you know, six, 7,000 miles away from, from Peru, but it's the same sun and it's setting on the same ocean at the exact same time. You know, like, like we are one, like this is, I'm not that far. And it just made me realize that I, I can't escape my story. I can't escape my home. I can't escape where I come. I just have to read this for our listeners. Um, I felt at home, it was familiar, and it was okay. I like the ambiguity of this image, too. It's like being blinded by the sun, or it can be an eclipse, or a black hole, or a camera shutter, or a moon, or an explosion, or a flashing memory, or a peephole. In that description, there's so much to me that I grab onto that is related to Peru <laughs> and sort of how I think of Peru as well. And I just, Raphael, do you have a prompt, an assignment for my students and listeners that grows out of this work or your practice in general? Well, it's, it's funny. It's funny you ask that because my favorite prompt for an assignment is the premise of this podcast. Um, <laughs> I, my favorite thing to do is to take my students to a museum select a photograph from the archive in the study room and have them look at it for 20 minutes. And um, they're not allowed to put their pen down or their pencil down until the time is up and they just have to write everything they see. And, um, and it's just an exercise on, you know, um, careful looking. Yeah. Just simply looking at something. Is there a particular archive that you'd like to direct us to? Maybe the strange fire? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would say, um, you know, the Strange Fire Collective, which I'm a co-founder of, um, is a fantastic resource for people looking for a really diverse uh, group of artists and information. Uh, both if you want to find, we have over 250 interviews that uh, people can access and read and are free, but we also have a pretty robust and growing I should say, um, an incomplete list of resources that touch on all kinds of different um, topics that are diverse from um, indigenous perspectives to uh, Latinx perspectives to nav navigating otherness and uh, many other sort of topics and, and important things that can be useful in the classroom. Thank you, Raphael. I think that's a fabulous assignment. And it will also give um, my students a chance to interact with the Strange Fire Archive and promote the work of one of the artists there with a description um, on, on our uh, Instagram account, The Careful Photograph. So thank you so much for that prompt. And thank you so much for being a guest today. This was really, I was really looking forward to speaking with you. And I love how we were able to pull out so much from this one photograph. So thank you for taking the time, Raphael. Me too. Thanks, Tara. And um, happy to always happy to be in conversation with you.